Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a great guest with us. That is Dr. Donald Gooch. Don, or as I uh, call him, because he is a friend after all, the Gooch. And so it's good to have Don with us. He is, of course, an associate professor at Stephen F. Austin State University, where he is a professor of political science, but his specialty is quantitative methods. And he's, of course, a statistician as well. And so the reason to bring Don on the show, and Don, you're going to get to say thanks for having me on, but just give me one more second. And the reason we brought Don on was because we wanted to talk about measuring deterrence. How do you measure deterrence? And who better than somebody? who measures political events and activities. And Don and I have done some work together before where we've looked at measuring risk. And so therefore, I thought he'd be great to talk about this very topic. So with that, Don, welcome to NucleCast. Well, thanks for having me, Adam. <clears throat> Man, what a, yeah, it's good to good to see you uh, again. Uh, I'm sure as as always, you're happy to be in my home state, the great state of Texas, not far from where I grew up. So looking forward to next time I'm home, maybe we'll get a chance to go have a beer. That sounds like a great, great plan. So, so deterrence. This, yeah, deterrence. How do we measure deterrence? That's our fundamental question. So, you know, how, how do we measure deterrence? Well, it's, it is, uh, I mean, I think, before we get to that particular uh, issue, how do we measure it? We have to we have to start with the problem of, you know, or what is deterrence? Deterrence in this case is someone or or, or a country, you know. So we're, we're looking at the international scene, a country not um, engaging in conflict with another country, right? So they are deterred from taking some uh, action of conflict against another country. So. Um, the fundamental problem of deterrence, of measuring deterrence as a um, as a as a uh, data analysis problem, is when it works, it you don't see any. It's it's a not event, right? It's it's something that didn't happen. And uh, I, I liken it to um, so if we're going to study deterrence, we have to study deterrence um, more with the things that are that happen that that coexist with when deterrence happens right uh and again i, li I likened it to how we how physicists study black holes right we can't observe a black hole because light goes in doesn't come out anything goes in the black hole uh, doesn't come out so we can't actually observe it so how do we know they exist how do they study black holes um they look at all the things that black holes affect and that we can observe 
right? And so we have to do the same thing with deterrence. We have to look at, we have to look around um, a, a deterrence event. What would be, and ask ourselves, what are the things that we should observe when a uh, country has successfully deterred another country and observe those things? And uh, it's those proxies uh, that uh, form the basis of most of the empirical study of deterrence. And so give us some, you know, like what would be some specific examples of what you're talking about? So, um, you know, the, the traditionally the study of deterrence looks at things like military balance, right? So, um, uh, uh, has a, uh, or what is a country's military capabilities relative to an, another country's military uh, uh, capabilities. Mostly we look at these things in what are called dyads. So a dyad is a country relative to another country. Uh, so we're looking at actually at th th those two countries' interactions as a singular observation or as our unit of analysis. Um, and so uh, looking at, a, 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 at dyadic interactions, when one country could deter another country, we might look at their relative military balance, right? So, um, uh, if, uh, 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 as a, uh, country builds up its military, it adds to its military capabilities, um, it is, uh, it, it may either be widening the, that military balance between a country, the, the other country and the dyad, or it may be closing that gap, right? So then we ask ourselves, well, how does the acquiring that military capability deter the other country, right? Theoretically, it should deter them the more I build up my military, right? The more I get military capability, the more you're deterred from engaging in conflict with me where you might lose. So, so we look at military balance. So if we look at the behavior that we would expect, can we also look at the behavior that we would expect if deterrence didn't hold? So if we expect right. a country to, to take an action and then they don't take the action, then I would assume, you know, because we, we know we would generally have a sense of what they want to do. Yes. And then when they don't do it. Well, and, and, and uh, that may lead us into talking about the kinds of deterrence. So we don't want to just treat military capabilities as a uh, as a black box. Obviously, it matters whether or not you're building a Navy versus um, adding to your, your ground troops or developing a nuclear capacity, right? Since we're on, we're talking, we're on uh, nuclear cast. Uh, uh, if you're adding to your nuclear capacity, the, uh, and the traditional studies of deterrence have said that is, that changes the game, right? Because uh, if we think about it from a, um, a game theoretic perspective, um, the, the threat of nuclear war, whether it's a, a limited nuclear war, whether it's a full-on um, strike, second strike scenario, um, the uh, the implications of it uh, move out, move beyond simply uh, conventional conflict, right? And so, the the bigger that threat gets, uh, the more it. Uh, so, on the one hand, we would expect it to detour to deter major conflict, right? Because major conflict might involve nuclear weapons. Uh, the sort of counterfactual uh, or the uh, counterintuitive result 
is that um, uh, traditional deterrence expectations are minor conflict possibilities actually go up. Sure. The reason for that is that, well, the prospects of a minor conflict turning into a major conflict is lessened. The probability is lower because we each side knows that could lead to nuclear conflict. And, and that's that's such a uh, uh, that's sort of the, the no win scenario of of nuclear conflict makes a minor conflict or proxy conflict uh, more likely. So what? So, Go so ahead, we should John. see. So if if nuclear deterrence is is working, we might see. Uh, so we you know we might go okay. Well, nuclear deterrence means uh, people should not be fighting. No, it actually might be you might be seeing more conflict. You're just seeing it as they're minor conflicts, not major conflicts. Yeah, so it's pushing conflict down. I have a sort of a diagram of what I call the conflict pyramid with nuclear deterrence being, you know, the capstone of it. And then you move down levels of major conflict and lesser conflict yes. and insurgency. And, you know, sort of at the bottom might be a hybrid warfare for the Russians or the Chinese or terrorism. And that as you push, as you're successful at deterring, you're pushing your adversary further and further down that conflict pyramid. And, you know, that's obviously a good thing. But it's not necessarily an indication that deterrence has failed. It's an indication that it's been successful, but it's still your adversary's been able to express their discontent, but in a in such a way that it doesn't, you know, prove an existential threat. Right. So, uh, you know, look at the uh, situation in Ukraine. Um, you know, we we might say, well. The, the 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 this proxy war going on in in in, in the Ukraine um, is that uh, evidence that deterrence has failed. Okay, well maybe maybe we can make that point, but we could also argue, uh, or or at least uh, based on the 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 the, the, the deterrence um, game theoretic perspective, you could argue that in fact it is evidence that deterrence is working, or at least nuclear deterrence is working because the threat of uh, nuclear warfare is omnipresent. Um, certain conventional responses are are put off the table. So, in a world where we didn't have nuclear weapons uh, and this conflict was going on, perhaps Russia chooses to um, expand the the conflict to NATO countries, understanding that that is going to escalate only to a, a, a wider conventional war. It has no prospects then of, of escalating to nuclear, uh, a, a, a nuclear uh, confrontation. So, and on, on the other side of it, the, the, the U.S. and its allies can fund Ukraine, can support Ukraine um, um, in such a way where perhaps in a, in a world that didn't have nuclear weapons, it would invite um an escalation of that conflict uh, uh, to um, actual NATO countries. Um, and they can, uh, and the reason that they can actually fund and provide weapons to the U Ukraine and fight this pro proxy war is the presence of nuclear war. We are observing in, uh, nuclear deterrence work. Yeah. It's a, I also wonder about, you know, in terms of this fundamental question of how do we, how do we measure deterrence? 
there's also opportunities, I would think, sort of after the fact, where we could go back into, you know, historical archives, for example. And we might read letters of U.S. presidents or, you know, former chairman of the Communist Party, former general secretary that says, you know, I did this or did not do this because of this. And so sort of a historical approach to it. But that's sort of an after the fact. And so is which is useful because it gives us, you know, gives us cases. Yeah, we've got we've got a lot of information, for example, on the Cuban Missile Crisis and President Kennedy, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the famous 13 days, um, considering all of his strategic opera, uh, uh, options uh, to respond to um, um, Russia place or attempting to place nuclear weapons in Cuba. Um, you know, we have the, uh, the, the traditional studies of, of, of the bureaucratic studies, which is, hey, it, it's crazy. Um, the Navy suggests a, a Navy blockade. The Air Force just, uh, suggested, a, 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 let's go, a, let's go bomb their installations. And uh, the, the Army suggested, well, let's, let's invade, let's have an invasion, right? So, uh, you know, that's sort of the traditional um, uh, analysis there uh, was related to sort of uh, the, the bureaucratic constraints of what possible uh, strategic responses you can have. But we can also look at that for, uh, you know, the, the deterrence effect, right? So um, one of the reasons that was de-escalated is the threat of nuclear weapons. If, again, envisioning a world that doesn't have nuclear weapons and we have uh, Russia wanting to establish a foothold in Cuba, that's a different strategic scenario and might have played out differently. Now, we're about at that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. So we're talking to Don Gooch. We're talking about how do we measure deterrence? What what do we have in our toolbox to do that? And we'll continue with that discussion in just a moment. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the ANWA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're talking with Don Gooch, professor at Stephen F. Austin State University, a friend of mine, and a what we lovingly call a quant. But uh, so, Don, we were talking about sort of this toolkit that we have, this range of options. And you mentioned to think of it like a black hole. And you, you can't see light coming out of the black hole but you can look at what's going on around the black hole to know that the black hole's there. It's sort of a, I like that analogy for deterrence. I think it's one that works. Now I wonder, I'll I'll give you sort of a, a contemporary example of a challenge. So if you take there a few years ago, the air force flew a B2 across 
the Korean Peninsula. And the Koreans didn't see the B-2. The radars didn't pick it up. And they were doing it in response to some provocative action by the Koreans. And it was supposed to be, you know, a, a deterrent message to tell them to sort of knock it off. Well, the Koreans missed it, so it didn't work. So they, they sort of understood that. The Air Force was like, wow, that didn't work. So then they flew a B-52. They had fighter jets accompanying it. The media was involved. And it was, you know, it was a a, a message you couldn't miss. And then, you know, the, the North Koreans sort of quieted down a little bit. So there are practical reasons why we would want to measure the effectiveness of deterrence sort of in real time. If you were to be sitting with the global strike commander or, you know, the STRATCOM commander or the Air Force chief of staff or the SECDEF, and you were to be giving them advice on how they can measure deterrence as they conduct operations, what kind of advice would you give them? So you're tr- so we're trying to determine whether or not a uh, our deterrence actions are are are, are being uh, taken credibly. Yeah, right? are, so, are they working? Are they working? Um, obviously, um, and I think your example kind of illustrates it. Um, I need uh, I need to look for evidence that they have observed our um, our deterrence message. So so we have communicated to them in a very clear and concise way. Um, we wish to deter this particular activity. We don't want you, for example, um, sending your aircraft carrier into this particular area because uh, doing so we 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 take to be a. Um, uh, an escalation of conflict. So we don't want them to do that. So what, so the first thing is on our end, we have to make sure that our message is clear and it is credible, right? So, um, and then, so how would we know if, so the first question is we need to know that they observed our deterrence message, right? So how do we see that? Might be communiques, might be uh, 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 high level diplomatic communications, um, it could be uh, public statements, uh, for example. Yeah, public statements uh, uh, along those lines. Of course, you, know, we all, you always get into the, the question of is are those uh, are those cheap talk or are those actual credible um, uh, credi- uh, um, um, statements or threats or warnings? Um, so was it observed? We need uh, evidence of that. And then. Um, you know, we might break down that deterrence reaction to not just, did they not send in the aircraft carrier? Um, you know, maybe we're looking for, uh, because that's sort of after the fact, right? So maybe we're looking for evidence um, that they are reacting to our threat. They're taking it seriously. They find it to be a credible deterrence message. Um, and that, again, could be through communiques, that could be through secondary um, uh, movements of their military. Um, uh, so evidence of the reaction. Um, and of course, well, fundamentally, um, did they not do what we wanted them not to do? 
Sure. Uh, and uh, uh, and again, uh, since uh, if we if we made a credible deterrent message, it was observed, and then they didn't do it. That's probably as good as we could do. We cannot say. I mean, I can't. I could not tell that that Stratcom commander. Well, in in an, in a universe where you didn't send the deterrence message, they would have done this, right? Never going to be able to do that because we don't. We only run history once. Uh, but uh, in terms of uh, the evidence that we can see, if I can determine that the, that the, the message was received, that they found it to be credible, and that they then reacted to it, then uh, that's evidence that deterrence worked. Well, so there's you sort of brought up a, a interesting point, and so there's this great chart that was created by Admiral retired now Rich Meese, who was the Stratcom commander 20 years ago. And he had the staff look at the average number of casualties each year in conflict. And he, I think they went from like 1600 to, you know, the year 2000 or so. And what they found is that on average over that 400 year period, about one to 2% of the population died in any given year as a result of conflict. And then when we get to 1945, and then for the, you know, 50 years, 55 years after, that number goes down to like 0.1%. So therefore, the argument would be that nuclear weapons enter the scene, conflict casualties go down. That's a clear example of deterrence working. But for others, like there's a famous uh, academic, uh, I think he's at Harvard, Stephen Pinker, who wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, in which he argues that it's not that, you know, it's not necessarily that nuclear weapons have done all this, but that humans are changing and evolving and they're becoming more pacific and that there are these all these other variables that explain why there's less conflict and, you know, less casualties from conflict, that it's not necessarily nuclear weapons. And for advocates of nuclear disarmament, this is sort of one of the arguments that they'll often bring up is that, hey, you can't prove that nuclear weapons have caused this, that it, you know, it can be these, all these other things as, as well. And so I guess my question to you is, if we wanted to try to figure out that problem, how might we go about doing it? Well, I mean, this is the um, uh, confounding factors problem, and it is it's 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 always difficult uh, when we get into things that are that are, are happening at simultaneously. Which one is the true um, influence? Uh, you know, from a statistical standpoint, uh, we have some techniques. Uh, you know, if we get measurements uh, that we can look at where we. Um, where uh, you know we basically put those potential confounding factors in in, in a model, we uh, uh, account for their co-relationships, and um, we can actually assess then which one, uh, based on the model, is more responsible for uh, a particular outcome than the other. Uh, but that presupposes we have those measurements and we're able to conduct that analysis. Um, you know, in this particular case, um, I I don't find uh, I do. I, I do have some questions of, uh, about that analysis. A lot has changed uh, over, what was it, 500, 400, 500 years? Yeah, yeah 500 years. Um, 
So, um, and I can think of a lot of reasonable alternative explanations for why uh, in 1945, um, uh, you know, death, for example, um, over that same period of time, or, or actually look a little bit longer, um, deaths from natural disasters have declined substantially, right? Now, obviously, that's not nuclear deterrence. Um, um, that is a function of the, um, the fact that we are uh, increasingly uh, large portions of the population of the world are living in safer uh, homes, safer places. We have better warning systems with regards to natural disasters. And so fewer and fewer people are dying from them. Um, so is something like that happening in the area of conflict? Is conflict uh, in the modern era become less deadly oriented towards mass casualties, yeah. right? And so we've, we're still having conflict. It just kills less people. Um, I think that is a uh, that is definitely an alternative explanation we want to look at to the question of whether or not deterrence has actually uh, had that impact. You know, um, we might look at frequency of conflict and, and sort of take a move away from looking at the casualties. Now we're just looking at conflict and um, uh, 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 the levels of conflict that are going on. Um, that would uh, potentially put that confounding factor off to the side and maybe maybe we see that there's a lot less conflict so even though yes it's true that that conflict is different it is less uh, it causes fewer mass casualties we actually see that conflict has declined there's less conflict and so that to me might be nuclear deterrence um not technological progress so i don't think much of pinkert's argument so <laughs> i didn't i didn't give it a lot of treatment so if you were to, you know, let's suppose that the Department of Defense hired you and wanted you to create sort of a simple, straightforward checklist that they could use to try to measure the effectiveness of their deterrent operations, what might you put on such a checklist such that, you know, some major sitting at a command somewhere could, you know, look at what's going on, see what they're doing, and then try to sort of, at least in a basic way, come to a conclusion yeah. of whether it's working or whether it's not working. Yeah. So um, you're, you're, the checklist needs to define the deterrent action. So what, what are we doing that is attempting to deter the other country? Uh, so we have to do that. We have to we have to we have to make sure that the other country observes our deterrent action, right? So that has to be the checklist, right? So we communicated our message, the message was received, and then of course we also want to check and make sure that that message is perceived as credible. In other words, they believe the other country believes that if they don't not do what we want them not to do, we will in fact take action that they will not like. So that, that it's, it's preventing us taking that action that is deterring them from doing what doing them doing what we don't want them to do. So that's the next step. They have to find that credible. Uh, and then your, your last on that check mark is, is um, actions or, uh, or actions by the, det the deterrent, the, the, re the receiver country uh, that indicate they have 
they've, they've observed the message, they find it credible, and they are, in fact, being deterred. They're not taking actions that we want them to not take. So as we wrap the show up, because we're running short on time, what would you, if you could have like a sort of a message of, hey, this is important, you know, here's what you got to do to better understand its effectiveness or not, you know, what would you want to recommend or save? I mean, we've talked about, you know, what we might say to the Global Strike Commander, you know, what sort of checklists we might build. Is there anything left? And and for the listeners of Nuclecast who, you know, they they might be military officers, there's some academics, there's folks in the sort of the Department of Energy side. Is there sort of any kind of big takeaways or or advice that you might give them to try to help them measure the effectiveness of what they're doing or anything you would want them to read or any studies? I, I mean, what, what can we leave? What sort of useful information can we leave the, the listeners with? Well, that's a big question. Um, I would, I would say that, um, uh, and th- this, this is going to, this is going to sound familiar given the work that you and I have done together, which is that, um, you, if, if you, if you want to know, if you, if you want to learn things about the world, if you want to learn things about, uh, behavior, particularly in the strategic context where, um, um, uh, sometimes incentives are not aligned, um, then, um, we need to be systematic in our approach, right? You have to, you have to, you have to think very, uh, precisely about what it is that we're, we're trying to do. How can we observe it? How can we, how can we uh, systematically collect data on what we are doing? And then how can we systematically collect data and observe uh, the response to that? Um, only then can we start to get at answering those kind of questions. If we don't, if we don't do the work, if we don't do the work in um, systemizing and uh, comprehensively collecting our data and then assessing it, then we're just in the world of knows yeah we're sort of sticking our thumb in the air and saying oh, air, this yeah. is kind of this is what my gut tells me yes we're, we're we're in the we're in the the listening to our gut because it's the only thing we know <laughs> all right well i want to thank professor don gooch for joining us thanks for talking about and it is a hard topic i'm not gonna lie it's one of those really uh, so it's funny that you should, you know, this discussion, cause it was a, this is a really challenging topic. And I, I remember once going to the state department and asking them, how did they measure the effectiveness of their diplomacy? Because I thought, you know, our topic is sort of like theirs. And so I'm sure the state department has a good way to measure it. And in the end, they didn't measure it. They measured the inputs to yes. what they did. They didn't measure sort of outcomes They and so I was like, man, this really isn't actually a, a very challenging topic. So I want to thank you for coming on the show and and us having this uh, brisk conversation about how do we try to do this very difficult thing. So thanks for, well, thank you for having me. Adam. Yeah, it was a good, good chat. And of course, I always want to thank the listeners. This, of course, is going to be one of those shows where you have to think carefully through the discussion and through what Don has said and see how it's applicable because I don't know about you. I, 
I know you, you love stats, Don. I took five or six stats <laughs> class in graduate school, and I will say they were not my favorites. But I, I, I managed. I got through. But uh, so thanks to the listeners as well. And thanks to you, Don. And we will look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Nuclecast. And of course, as always, stay tuned for my afterthoughts. Well, so we just had a uh, interview with Don Gooch. Uh, I don't know about you, but my brain is tired because thinking about those kinds of questions are some of the really challenging ones. And this is almost like a natural disadvantage of deterrence is that its success generally doesn't have an easily measurable outcome, which makes deterrence really hard to measure. And to then go out and say, hey, what we're doing is working. So therefore, you know, fund missile systems and fund bombers. And and so it's just, you're at a natural disadvantage. This is why we have such a predilection for conventional conflict because you can see it happening and then you can see the results for good or bad and deterrence isn't quite like that. And so it was an interesting discussion with Don and then just to try to think through how do we effectively measure it? I'm still not sure we have really good ways to do that. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.